you know, that might help us uh, interpret this and get a sense of what's going on uh, in this church. Uh, so today, then, since he'll be doing that next week, I'll just stick a little bit closer to what we encounter in Ephesians itself in the writing. Uh, strangely enough, Ephesians 1 uh, is essentially three sentences. Uh, so you have verses 1 and 2, the opening. Verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence, the longest sentence in the New Testament. Uh, and then verses 15 to 23 is another uh, very long sentence. So. Paul uses a lot of semicolons here, if those things were in Greek. In your English, uh, you won't see that. They, in order to make it readable, uh, they add a lot more periods, but it's three sentences in this one chapter. Um, and as I was trying to translate it uh, in preparation, I kept thinking, oh my goodness, is he going to like take a breath? Because uh, I told him, you know, I, I, do, I work during the, uh, the weekdays on this after the kids are in bed, and so I was like, okay, I'll just take the next little section. <laughs> the section didn't end. Uh, because he dragged it out from 3 to 14. So uh, I worked longer than Lauren wanted me to that night. Um, so I blamed Paul. But <laughs> we do a lot of that in the church. Hey. Um, so uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, we'll think of this as the first sentence. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you had come to my Romans class, or if you've been coming to uh, this class as we're looking at the prison epistles, you'll see that Paul starts every letter with almost the same kind of opening. Uh, and I think it's important uh, always that we slow down and see this, because if we don't get this framework, then the rest of it doesn't make sense. And since I've done it several times, I'll be very brief about it today. Uh, but he consistently uses this language like Christ, faith, grace, peace, Father, uh, and Lord. So Christ, that's the sense, it, it ties what he's saying into the Old Testament. Christ is the Messiah, Israel's promise uh, restoring king. Uh, so already he's making a claim about what God has done through Israel uh, and how that's continuing in their story. So to understand how he's speaking to the churches, he's assuming that you know this God of Israel as well. When he calls them the holy ones, he's not saying something about uh, them being perfect. Uh, instead, holy um, includes the sense of they are called out, they are set apart, they are to be a people of mission. Uh, so you get this opening framework. Who is Christ uh, and who are you? As he calls them to be faithful, the assumption is, is that what it means to be um, uh, someone who confesses Christ is to be one who is in allegiance uh, with Jesus as King. Uh, the language of grace, this is foundational. Uh, this is how we enter into the story, and this is how we live out the story. It is because of God's grace, and we pay forward that grace, and we live within that grace uh, of his initiating extravagant gifts to us. Peace carries this sense of shalom, that God is bringing peace, not just uh, in a spiritual way, forgiveness, uh, but God's peace is breaking into the world, uh, in our societies, in our communities, even in uh, as we look forward to in our environments and in our bodies. This is the, it's a kind of now and not yet peace uh, that is made possible through what Christ has done. God is consistently seen first as Father. Um, I was just talking to one of my students today, uh, or excuse me, um, on Friday, uh, one of our international students who is away from home. She's feeling um, uh, kind of isolated, and um, I suggested uh, that in this difficult time, when she's not finding community, in the, that this can be an open door for her to start to lean into to, um, her relationship with God, which she had said 
she'd only had her parents' faith. She's never really had any relationship with God. And so as I suggested, in this difficult time, you might view this as an open door to lean in uh, to God. Uh, she, I saw her kind of breathe in and say, okay. And I asked, you know, what was, what's that reaction about? Uh, and she said, well, I know I need to be praying and reading my Bible and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and what I tried to help her see is, is that if we're viewing God as having this sense of you've got to do this and this and this to be in a relationship with me, then we're missing uh, the, the framework that we are, are initially to understand. If God is loving Father who has uh, poured his extravagant grace uh, upon us, then it's not we got to do these things to make God happy, but God is waiting there as a Father with open arms to hear us, to comfort us, uh, especially when we are feeling those feelings. And you could see this kind of shift happen in her as she thought, oh, instead of viewing these things that I have to do, I can lean into God and think that he views me as Father, he views me as his beloved daughter. Um, and I could see the, the, the pressure lift from her. Um, that's one of the gifts of being Christian, is to point to this God as our Father uh, and the good that he brings. So God, Father, uh, and the Lord Jesus. Jesus is ultimately Lord, not only of our lives, but in a world, in this Roman uh, empire where Caesar is Lord. And as Caesar is Lord, the empire's culture is kind of structured in a way that reflects that. The Christian community confesses Christ as Lord. And so it has a different kind of structure to it. So I come across this several times whenever we go over this because if we don't get Paul's framework, uh, we're going to misunderstand Ephesians. And it's a consistent invitation that if this is how Paul sees the world in himself, we're invited as Christians to learn to see the world this way as well, uh, where grace and peace are kind of determining um, parts of our lives, where God is Father and Jesus is Lord and Christ. Two interesting things we get here in the first two verses. Um, Paul, sometimes in these openings, in his opening prayer or opening words, he gives hints of what's to come. And so two hints of things to come in Ephesians. Uh, one, in the very opening, he talks about the will of God. And in just a minute, we're going to look at this language of will, and predestination, and election. So he's preparing us for that now. And the second thing uh, is the language in verse 1 of in Christ. In Christ, or in him, shows up in these first 14 verses probably 10 times. He's going to again and again and again highlight how our reality as Christians is somehow in Christ. Um, and to think about what that means. Here's how Stephen Fowle describes what being in Christ might mean. Being in Christ locates one within the community founded by Christ and thereby within the realm governed by Christ. If Christ's lordship is to have any material reality in the present, so what Stephen Fowle is saying is, if Christ being lord is not just something that happens up in heaven, but is something that's breaking into the world now, uh, if we're going to speak of Christ's lordship and being in Christ, if it's going to really have that material reality, then there needs to be a community of people whose faith and practice whose hopes and desires, whose very life and death are all shaped by their allegiance to the Lord. Being in Christ means living within the realm of Christ's rule. Uh, so some powerful words there with just a preposition, in Christ. And just, um, just what it would mean for us as individuals and as communities to live into that powerful reality. Um, this is more than a throwaway line. Just make one comment on yeah. yesterday. I, I uh, drove down to Birmingham to go to Caleb's father-in-law's mm -hmm. funeral, uh, uh, mother-in-law, mm -hmm. excuse me, 
and it was a Catholic mass at that time. And during the I didn't know this, but during the Catholic mass, they served communion during that time. But they had inserted, and the priest said, "This is for Catholics who have fasted one hour before this ceremony and are in deem themselves allowable, uh, appropriate to take communion at this time." All others are asked to remain in their seats. Hmm. All visitors who are non-Catholic are asked to remain in their seats. If you alternatively, you may come to the front, and when you come to the priest, put your hands over your chest, which is the sign you are not Catholic, and we will bless you, but you do not take communion. Hmm. Yeah. It's a pretty clear picture of who they view in and who they yeah. view out. Yeah. That, that is, that is, I have never... I grew up Catholic. Ever, ever, ever heard that in all the masses I've been. To. Really? That is so bizarre. They had it huh. printed in the program. Interesting. Unless the mother is reiterated. Unless the mother-in-law, you know, was like this shirt maybe just about Catholic. I don't never know. heard that. It's all interesting. Although that was my same experience in yeah. Central oh, really? So just like the Church of Christ might have a spectrum, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. might get that same thing in the, uh, the Catholic Church. I do think that is the Catholic doctrine. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, the, it's the doctrine for sure. I mean, I just, it's I just not always that, the that practice. At a mass like that, I just... Huh. I just thought it was interesting. That yeah. They stood very firmly on this is for people yeah. Christ. Yeah, very interesting. In contrast that, we get complaints on how bad the <laughs> we do have. <laughs> yes, we need to put that on our side. Yeah. Communion bread is that it's not revered as yeah. Catholic. You see little kids in the room shut in their mouth. Right. That yeah. wildly irreverent. Right. To someone who yeah. Who sees it as the actual it's body? Like you got to be kid Christ. Yeah. You know? well, I, didn't, I didn't mean to get you way off. But oh. that, was, <laughs> that was a significant point of saying in Christ. Yeah. We're we're dealing with people. Yeah, and. And maybe instead of thinking about what that, because it can it can become a thing that uh, in Christ is about who gets to do certain rituals or not, and we see that across denominations. Uh, but the in Christ language I think that we get here is not about who can participate in this or that, but who can live as a participant of an in Christ um, reality. Um, and so that's open to all, that's challenging to all, that's life giving to all uh, to take seriously. Not to stay on this topic, but I think that's. <laughs> An interesting thing in the restoration movement that it was a movement that was inclusive, even though we might have become exclusive at some point in time. But it was yeah. there was an open table that was kind of part of part of the initial movement. So. Yeah, it's uh, we have a strange history uh, in Churches of Christ, to say the least. Yeah, that uh, that some of the things that we started with were not the things that became characteristic. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in verses three. 4 and 5 and 11, and then I'll go back through this in more detail, but uh, we get the, the um, predestination sounding language. So notice the language like chose and elected. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption uh, in accordance with his pleasure and will. In verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Uh, so I want to do a little bit on um, free will and or election uh, this morning before we, because it's such an important topic, and then we'll go 
through Ephesians a little bit more uh, detail. Um, the issue of free will um, or a determined reality is not just a Christian conversation. Uh, I recently read a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality and uh, from Alex Rosenberg, who is an atheist philosopher at Duke. Uh, his argument is that, in fact, by taking God out of the picture, uh, what we are left with is a fully determined reality. Uh, and so I don't know the, he's a kind of his philosophy of science is his world, and I don't know the scientific realm well enough, but as he explained it, um, if there is no God, then uh, everything is essentially reducible to physics. And if everything is reducible to physics, uh, then physics has no will, physics has no mind, physics has no intentionality, which means that all the world is just going to follow the predetermined kind of physical path that it was already set to go on. And any sense that we have choice is just an illusion. Uh, because um, there is no, if there is no will at the beginning, uh, everything is following the laws of physics. We are simply super, I mean, just incredibly complex physical beings, uh, but even as incredibly complex, complex physical beings, we're still physical beings, and we're still determined by the laws of physics, which means that we, at the end of the day, don't have any real choice. Whether he's right or not, I know others, like Polkinghorne, thinks that um, the more complex we get, it might open up new realities and new possibilities, but uh, to, to help you understand Rosenberg's point, um, let's say world star with the Big Bang. All the planets, all the solar systems, all the stars we have, none of those chose to be where they are. They're just following the laws of physics. The world we live in, everything as it is, how things um, shaped and uh, how we you know, got water on the planet and uh, plants and all that stuff, none of it chose to do that. So everything we can think of in all reality seems to be predetermined by what was going to happen. And then, he's saying, atheists want to um, sometimes cheat and say, the only exception, though, is humans, as though they're somehow special and not uh, different from the created world. And he's saying, nope, you're just more complex. Your lives are still determined for you. So anyway, this isn't just a Christian conversation. You can agree or disagree with him, uh, but he makes an interesting case. Christians also uh, have some differences about uh, election and free will. There's no escaping that the Bible teaches about election, uh, but there are different ways for interpreting this. Uh, so let me give you two options, and I'll talk about uh, where I come down on this and why I'm right. Uh, so <laughs> it was predetermined for me to be right on it anyway. So, um, so uh, there is the kind of individually focused way of reading this. Uh, that is, God elects each individual to salvation. So when they read the language of predestined, election, plan, and chose, what they hear is that uh, God... Um, kind of reached down and he opened the eyes or the hearts or the minds of uh, only particular individuals so they might uh, experience his grace and salvation. The other option is to understand the language of predestination, election, and salvation as corporate election. That is, rather than God choosing a handful of individuals specifically, uh, he chooses Christ. And notice all the in Christ language that I've already mentioned. Uh, he chooses Christ and then those who, with some degree of freedom, choose to be part of the body of Christ. So yes, he's chosen Christ, but we have some degree of freedom in choosing whether or not we are in Christ. Um, so let me lay out these two options a little bit and then get some um, thoughts from y'all. So here is a little defense of the first option. The God elects individuals. And um, just a spoiler alert, this is not where I come down on this. But 
Uh, the idea that God chooses uh, particular individuals, those who hold on to this view, particularly in the, the Reformed traditions, um, they find this important because they see that it upholds God's sovereignty. That is, they want to, to hold on to this idea that God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. To suggest that humans have some freedom suggests that God is not in complete control of that. And so they're bothered by an idea that God might not be in complete control. They also think uh, that to suggest that humans have some freedom uh, diminishes God's grace. That is, if they can have some choice in whether they are the in Christ people, that takes away from God's grace. It needs to be 100% grace, which means it must be 0% human. That's the, the kind of reasoning that can go on here. Um, I disagree, uh, not fully, but partially with these. Uh, the second option, that God chooses a people, and those, or God chooses Christ, and uh, there is some degree of choice uh, then uh, in whether or not one chooses to be in Christ. To me, this seems to make God more just. I am really bothered by a view that God elects certain people to salvation and others to damnation because that would seem to suggest that uh, God is punishing people for something they have no choice in and that doesn't seem like the good God uh, that is exemplified in scripture. Second, I think that it helps explain the existence of evil. If God gives us freedom, God, instead of God creating evil, he creates freedom and with that freedom we may have distorted it towards evil. But if God gives us no freedom, that seems to make God the author of evil. And that seems to be a Christian no-no. Uh, third reason um, that I believe that God gives us some degree of free will uh, is it makes sense of human purpose. That rather than God creating um, essentially people that have no choice, that are uh, kind of just pre-programmed robot, robots, uh, he has created a people who can legitimately experience and practice love uh, and faithfulness. Um, I think it also, the idea of something like free will, finds a biblical parallel in the corporate election of Israel. God chose Israel. Does that mean that every single Israelite uh, acts or is part of God's chosen people? Well, if you know the Old Testament, you know that there was constantly this kind of sifting of who was truly uh, God's people and who was uh, merely biologically part of God's people. Think John the Baptist at the beginning of Luke. Don't even say to me that you are children of Abraham. God can raise up uh, children of Abraham, what, from these rocks? Is that what it's? Uh, and, and so what he says then is, bear the right fruit. Uh, don't point to your pedigree, um, because being chosen or elected as a people is not the same as being chosen to something like salvation. And also, we see in the Old Testament that those who aren't chosen sometimes find their way into the people of God, like Ruth, who is a Moabitess, uh, who is supposed to be in this excluded people of God, and yet she finds herself not only among the people of God, but in Christ's own um, lineage. So uh, that God seems to be choosing then more people for a purpose rather than individuals for salvation according to the biblical view. And lastly, I think it makes more sense of the recurring call to obey or to be holy in Scripture. I can't even make sense of how God would speak through his prophets or his people in scripture, calling people to live a particular lifestyle while the whole time essentially saying, you don't have a choice in this. It just seems to be speaking out of both sides of one's mouth, which means then that I lean toward the second option where we have free will, God elects Christ and those who choose to be in Christ, but I try to hold on to a few things from the first. I don't totally throw away the idea of some sort of, uh, uh, the importance of God's sovereignty and the importance of God's grace. I believe, then, that God always initiates. 
God always initiates any sort of move towards salvation or election. That is, uh, because we are sinful, because we are broken, because sin enslaves us, uh, that we require God to do at least some sort of initial work in opening our hearts and minds to him. Uh, it is his initial move. But I don't think because his initiating move is his overriding grace. I think he gives us a chance, and then with some degree of freedom, it might be 0.1%, but still with some degree of freedom, uh, we have a choice whether we will participate and respond to this grace or whether we will reject it. Uh, so that um, the, the Reformed or the Calvinists who are concerned with God's sovereignty, um, I've heard it explained like this, how can God be sovereign and yet humans have free will? Uh, one of the, the best ways I've seen this in a kind of simple diagram, and you can make this more complex, but maybe this, this will get um, the point across. Uh, some think that if we're here, and it's God's will uh, that things go to here, uh, that there is one way to do that. And therefore, God has to micromanage every single action, decision, and choice. But those of us who believe that God is sovereign and gives humans free will, think that rather than God's sovereignty being limited to a kind of one path, we think that God is so sovereign that he can take our individual choices um, and weave them however he might choose in our billions and trillions of choices and still bring us to his plan. Which means that he can give us free will and yet retain sovereignty. It suggests to me then that he gives us free will but not 100% uh, free will to do just anything and everything we might want. There is free will uh, within a kind of limited range. So C.S. Lewis, who says things about better than anyone else, says it like this. You will certainly carry out God's purposes however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. You need the best. Wow. You're going to carry out God's purposes however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. You could be like a John, or you could be like a Judas, but God's will is going to be done. It uh, depends on how you are going to align yourself with that. That's the kind of sovereign God that I think is revealed in Scripture. Uh, one who is in control, but whose in controlness still gives us a measure of freedom to respond, to obey, to disobey. So, uh, before we get into Ephesians, thoughts on this? Is that too much? 9 a.m. in the morning or 10 a.m.? Yes? Why do you believe that God always makes the initial move toward us. Why do I believe that God makes the initial move toward us? Always does, yeah. Uh, because I think, um, I think partly that's who he is. Uh, I think I'm trying to take seriously that uh, the, the language and the teaching that we get, especially through Paul, that seems to recognize our, our brokenness and sin. Um, and... Um, there seems to be this consistent pattern, be holy because I am holy, forgive as God has forgiven you. So often our ethics seem to be, uh, throughout scripture, it's what God has done for you, you pay that forward. Uh, so we're not earning, we're not twisting God's arm. He's, and besides, the moment we're born, his grace is already present among us. Uh, so there is, just to be alive, uh, is we've already experienced some degree of his initiating grace. Um, to have any sort of friendship or to see beauty is to begin to experience something of his initiating grace. Uh, I so I guess it depends on what he uses, what you're using by the word initiate. Mm -hmm. um, you could just be simply talking about John 6, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Mm -hmm. That may be the initiating level that you're on. 
or you could go all the way to John MacArthur's initiating, you were going to regardless. That's where I won't go. Yeah. Yes, so that's going too far. Yeah, but it, there are there may be degrees, and and um, I don't know if it's the same degree for everybody. I just have no clue about that. I think um, we have to assume God initiates. Um, I think because it prevents a, it's kind of a, a for the wisdom of, of avoiding pride and retaining humility, for one, is that, you know, if it wasn't for God calling me and inviting me, I would not be here. Um, and I think, I think most of us can kind of look back and say, yeah, this was not my doing. I may have been some sort of participant in this to some degree, but if God had not acted, then... Uh, so it's partially what I see in Scripture and partially my own self-reflection. So. And, that's, and that's really helpful practically when you're <coughs> talking to people. To say this, this drawing that is happening to you is not a problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it relates to uh, our response, the, the free will part of the response. But it also is helpful in, say, before it was your idea, it was God's idea. Yeah, you yeah, know, you were not surprising. It. Part of him. He wants to unite with you. Mm-hmm. I think of the prodigal's father waiting, you know, looking for him coming uh, at a distance. Yeah. Is that part of the work of the Holy Spirit? I think so, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I would say the Holy Spirit works in all kinds of ways within the church, within scripture, within nature, within beauty, with, uh, within good systems, um, within reason. Uh, there's just so many paths he can take because this is his world uh, and we are his people. We'll just, yeah. Accept it. Rhonda, I saw your hand up. I, I agree with you, I think, Josh, but it seems to me by you saying he has chosen Christ and those that choose to mm-hmm. to accept Christ and become the chosen, it seems to me that the chosen was really at creation. That he chose us at creation. He chose us to be made in his image. And we were born not into sin. We were born into relationship. And and then we were the ones that chose to go astray and all have sinned. So it I just I want to clear I want I want Yeah, so we're gonna get that. this language in a little bit of he has chosen from from the beginning of creation. Uh, and I I think uh, that uh, he has chosen to work through Christ and through the people of Christ's body from all creation. That wasn't like God thought, oh man, okay, the, the whole Ten Commandments thing didn't work, and then, you know, the kings didn't work, so now I'm going to try plan C. Uh, that the, There was always a sense in which Christ was going to be part of this plan. Um, but I don't take that to mean that as Christ is always being part of it, um, that that means he's chosen explicit individuals who will be part of it. Right. Um, but, but at the same time, it wasn't that he chose some of us later to become part of the Christ story and left the others behind. I mean, I think he predestined all humankind to be in relationship with him. We were born into mm-hmm. the garden, whether we were there or not. And, and he predestined us to be his, and then it was broken, and he's allowed us ways to get back through Christ. Yeah, so it's not like a limited election. Right. Yeah, we were all, we're all made in his image. Um, or you even get this language, God wills that all might be saved. Uh, yeah, so uh, this is a, another uh, uh, reformed teaching, limited election, which I reject. Uh, because I think we, we are all have that from creation. That's the ideal. 
uh, but we might reject that. And if um, chapter and verse and the Ephesians with the idea that we were chosen at creation not later mm -hmm. then it makes a completely different reason it seems to me yeah that you see that, that God has always wanted this right. yeah so I, I always operate with this sense of creation things got broken God is working to restore things that's always in my uh, yeah um, so I sometimes forget that that is not always the, you know, the assumed framework. But John Mark, when I was in, like a sophomore, beat that into my head. If you guys don't know John Mark Hicks, and so I can't see scripture otherwise. And I think he's right about it too. Yeah, have you? So the uh, idea of God as omniscient, mm -hmm. knowing all things. So in a hundred years from now, we don't really know who is part of the ones who've chosen God mm -hmm. only knows way down into the as long as future goes so does does that uh, change anything about the idea of uh, making a choice that he's not aware of or is it already in place because yeah those who practice the, the uh, yeah. The tulip idea yeah they kind of hold on to that you can't surprise God mm -hmm. so it's already in place which creates uh, a, yeah, a there's, lot of that, what omniscience means. There's a lot of ways of trying to make sense of that. Uh, one, we, it seems as though God exists outside of time, so that all is present to him. Um, so that uh, what seems to us to be happening in the future is happening in the present to God. So it might not be something that's surprising him, but he's already aware of. Uh, and then you have, I think, um, instead of importing some sort of Greek definition of what it means to be all-knowing, which I think kind of happens sometimes in the tulip system, we take his all-knowing as it, as it appears in Scripture, where he seems to show like um, some uh, willingness to change or to, um, to go a different way depending on how people respond. So, you know, think Nineveh, you know, they responded. So, although he said, you know, in so many days I'm going to destroy it, they, re they changed, and so he adjusted accordingly. So. God, however he does it in his all-knowing, all-powerfulness, seems to allow us to change and to, if not be surprised by it, at least to work alongside of it. So, um, What do you think about the notion, the kind of the open theology notion that God chooses not to know each individual decision that an individual can make? I don't like, know. for instance, Abraham is about yeah. to, that's the one they go to, is Abraham's about to sacrifice his son yeah. and the Spirit of the Lord or the angel of the Lord comes and he stops him. He says, now that I know that you're... Yeah. I think that he... So, I'm open theist as far as he gives some options. But I'm not where it's just like, who knows where it's going? I think this is unchristian yeah. when you say that he's lost control or that humans are somehow in control of where things are going. So, I think, yeah, there's some openness. But not complete openness. But... If I try to say more than that, I'll just reveal my ignorance and I'll start talking in circles. Um, all right, let you me... you all see the genius of Hilton not being here today? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning what? Meaning that you're taking all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that he purposefully, uh, yes, smart, avoided us. Uh, yeah. Um, well, let me, with my 10 minutes, highlight some of the things that I think are particularly um, important for us to see uh, in this chapter. So, uh, verse 5, in, kind of backing up to verse 4, at least have my son, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill. Uh, a couple things that I think are 
are worth seeing here. This is in love and accordance with his pleasure and goodwill. Uh, so that, that God is not like having his arm twisted. As though Jesus, sometimes we have this view that, that there's an angry God and there's a loving Jesus. And so loving Jesus steps in and, and prevents angry God from doing what you know, his wrath would want to do to us. Uh, instead we see something that, that, yes, maybe God has wrath against sin. But it's his pleasure and goodwill to have his wrath and his judgment um, taken care of in such a way that, that humans can still be in relationship with him. So this isn't God's arm being twisted by a good Jesus. It's a good God uh, whose will it is uh, that we might be healed and restored and reconciled. Um, the language of adoption here, uh, at least according to Stephen Fowl, who is one of the people I'm studying for this, uh, in the Roman world, there was kind of two processes for adoption. There was severing ties uh, with your um, family of origin, and then there was this... Um, there was accepting the new values and practices and um, family uh, that you were going to. And so I think that picks up uh, in Paul's language later in Ephesians where we are dying, severing ties with one way of life. And now that we are in Christ, adopted by God, our new father, uh, or our father from creation, but who we had kind of gotten separated from, now we are adopted into a new value system, a new community, a new people, um, and a uh, new hope. So a lot, I think, carried there in that language of adoption. Uh, so verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according uh, with the riches of his grace. Uh, redemption is a, a, a metaphor from the slave market. Uh, so here is us being redeemed out of slavery. Um, there is ongoing language here. The language that we have redemption is present tense. Uh, and that can mean present continuous in the Greek, which is another way of saying um, it's ongoing. We are constantly being redeemed. We are constantly being freed from slavery. So as Christians, the chains are kind of broken, but unless I'm alone here, you realize in some ways you are still got some attachment to sin, some slavery. And so we are constantly being freed in that way. Uh, from Romans, Paul's other book, where he develops this sense of redemption, we see that uh, in some ways we are shackled not only by our guilt, uh, but by the overpowering captivity that sin can be. That is, we have this guilt that we cannot fix, but we also have these patterns and systems and um, attachments to sin that we cannot free ourselves from on our own. And so it is through his redemption that makes this possible. Uh, verse 8, he lavished this on us with all wisdom and understanding. I think that uh, Stephen Fowle is right that this is where we need to readopt that great virtue, uh, that word prudence, um, which is not about being prudish, but it's about being discerning. That is, as we come to be this people, uh, we should ever grow in our discernment and our insight in how to live according to this new reality. He made known to us, I'm in verse 9 now, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Again, more in Christ language. Uh, mystery in, um, in Paul's writing is not something that um, is just kind of confusing and we don't know how it's going to end. When Paul speaks of mystery, he's talking about a mystery that has been revealed. And as he develops this in Ephesians, the mystery that has been revealed is one, that Christ is the source of redemption, which no one saw coming. This carpenter who was crucified now becomes the source of all hope. That's one mystery. The second mystery that he develops in Ephesians is that the Gentiles are now part of God's plan. And, uh, and Israel hadn't really seen that uh, as they could have. So through this revelation, 
uh, we see what we might have been blind to before. It's not as though there weren't hints back in the Old Testament Israel story, but as God reveals this in a new way, we kind of look back and think, oh man, there were all these signs about what God was going to do through Abraham, how he was going to bless the nations, how he was calling people. And now our eyes are open to what um, they weren't because of this mystery that is now revealed. Verse 10, keep in mind we're still in the second sentence of Ephesians. Um, uh, To put this in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Uh, All things, God is going to redeem his good creation. It's not just humans, it's not just our spirits, our souls or something like that, but as the one who has overcome death, uh, it's going to be our bodies and spirits as they were always meant to be and our created world that started out good and has been damaged. Um, and this, though, is in the fullness of time. So Paul kind of, kind of bumps back and forth between what has happened uh, and what is still yet to happen. That, that good news is breaking in, and we're beginning to experience and be part of this, but it's not here fully yet. We have reason to hope, uh, but we still await, we still groan uh, in the current experience uh, that we are in. So... Uh, Verse 11, in him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order, notice why, verse 12, in order that we who were the first to put all our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Uh, Hope shows up throughout here. Um, As I was reading that book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, what um, what is clear is that there is no source of hope. Um, in that that world. There is no sense that justice will be done, that things will be set right, that um, that uh, the brokenness that we've experienced might be made whole at some point. There is no hope. And this isn't just for atheists. This is kind of becoming a, um, an experience across the world. Uh, when, you, when you kind of step back, if you don't have belief that things will be made right, what that does is take away any real reason to hope. You might have optimism, but it's, it's an optimism that's unfounded. Uh, but if Christ has really overcome sin and death, uh, if all things uh, will really be brought to unity under him, then we, of all people, have more reason to hope than anyone else. This is part of uh, how we might, for lack of a better word, sell um, this great faith that we have. And what is this for? Um, verse 12, in order that we were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, um, so that we might praise him. Now, it's almost inevitable that when we talk about praise in the church, we think about a church service, um, like that God has done all this work so that we might sing to him. And I would say that is just a slice of how we praise God. Richard Middleton uh, wrote this book, New Heavens and New Earth, and it it was one of the, the most insightful parts of that book was he said, Uh, Look, all of creation is made to praise God. But how do trees praise God? How do mountains praise God? They praise God by being trees and by being mountains. How do humans praise God? Well, in part it's singing, but by being the people we were created to be. That is how we praise God. He has created us to be people in community, to be people uh, who express love and who share love. And so how might we be people of praise? Primarily by being those who we were created to be. And you were included in Christ Jesus when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. We have this pledge, this guarantee, this source of hope. Um, And then, because I've only got about two minutes left, uh, let me jump to verse 20. 
he exerted, so this is about God's exerting his strength, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Um, we cannot forget that our hope is founded on what God has done through Christ. And Christ's victory is not just a victory over death, but it absolutely is. But it's a victory over all opposing powers. And it is the source of our hope that things will one day be set right. And so as this church in Ephesus is inevitably dealing with conflict that comes from denying the other uh, gods in that place, from the economic ramifications that happen when you're no longer part of the trade guilds um, that require sacrifices, uh, when you are seen as a misfit in your society, um, when injustice is uh, more the norm, uh, there is hope that Christ is going to be, he has already in some ways uh, achieved the victory, and then there is the hope that that victory is going to be felt uh, across all areas one day. In verse 23, just for a little fun here, uh, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, um, Stephen Faust says, commentators are agreed this is the most obscure verse in the entire epistle. So if you want to wrestle with that, you're welcome to. But in Greek it is, uh, which is the body, or which is his body, the fullness of, the, uh, of that which is fulfilling, or what that which is fulfilled, all things in all ways. Uh, so some really weird um, and generic uh, language there. But that's, again, Paul and his obscurity. Uh, all things being under his feet, as we close, brings two psalms to mind. Psalm 110, a royal kingly psalm, uh, where the king is going to be, uh, have everything under his feet and he's going to establish justice. This is our Messiah. But also Psalm 8, uh, where it's celebrating humans and how God has given uh, creation under humans' feet. Uh, uh, and, and you can kind of get the sense that Jesus is both the truly human one and the true king and Lord. Um, so just a little bit of the beauty and the power of these uh, three sentences of Ephesians 1. Thank you all for being in class today. It's very encouraging that uh, you guys come and hear 